We have been working through a study in the book of Acts, and we have been following the Apostle Paul and Silas as they have been traveling on their second missionary journey as the gospel of Jesus Christ is coming from Jerusalem and is going to Judea and to Samaria, and now is spreading out to the ends of the earth. And we saw Paul and Silas as they made their way into Philippi, and they came down to a river and they met a woman named Lydia. And as Paul proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to her, God opened her mind to understand the scriptures and she believed. As they were walking through the city, they met a young lady who was possessed by demons, who was fortune-telling. And the Apostle Paul spoke the name of Jesus and proclaimed in the name of Jesus and commanded the demons to leave this woman. And by the power of the word of God, she was set free from the power of the devil. And because of that, Paul and Silas ended up in prison and beaten. And it looked like the word of God maybe stopped in Philippi, but no. For as they were worshiping God and as they were praying to God, God shook the doors of the prison. The prison was shaken. The chains were loosed. And the one who was in charge of the prison came down to see what was going on, was about to take his life. And Paul said, no, do not do that, for we are all here. And he began to proclaim the gospel to this man. He says, what must I do to be saved? And as Paul proclaimed the gospel to him, just as the prison doors had opened and the chains had fallen off the prison, so the jailer had the prison doors of his life opened. And the chains of sin that had held him for so long were shaken off and he was set free by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul and Silas then went to Thessalonica and they got to Thessalonica and they began to go into the synagogue and to proclaim this glorious gospel of Jesus and the resurrection. So some in Thessalonica believed as they heard the word while others were enraged and they began to pursue Paul and Silas and chase them out of town. But the word of God was not stopped for as they were chased out of town, they went with the word of God into the next city and proclaimed him there in Berea. And as they did it in the synagogue in Berea, it said that many of the Bereans, they began to search the scriptures to see if the things that Paul said was so. And many of them came to faith in Jesus Christ. And we see the power of the word of God as it is moving forward from city to city. As people are being set free from their bondage to sin. Their eyes are being opened and realizing there is a God who created the heavens and the earth. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the punishment for their sins so they could be made right with God. They could come into a relationship with him. But in Berea too, when the Thessalonians, those who had persecuted him and chased him out of Thessalonica, when they had heard that the word of God was being proclaimed in Berea, they were enraged. And they went there too and they chased Paul out of Berea. But the word of God was not stopped for it moved forward and now we have found that it has arrived in Athens. And as the word of God arrives in Athens, we read these words in verse 16 of chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that this city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Then Luke gives us some insight into why these men were wanting to know. It says, Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Let's just take a moment and reflect on these verses. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, who was he waiting for? He was waiting for Silas and Timothy, who had been left behind in Berea and were continuing to build up the believers there while Paul had taken a 300-mile journey by boat to Athens. And Paul had come to Athens. Athens was an amazing city. It was one of the great wonders of the Roman world at the time. It was the intellectual and the cultural capital of the world. It was the place from where Western civilization was birthed. It was the former home of people like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Even today, many people go to Athens just to see the glory of the great ruins of Athens and to take pictures there. In Paul's day, many also came to Athens to see the great works of art, to see the great works of sculpture crafted by the hands of men. To see the grand architecture in the elaborate temples of Athens. To listen to the poetry and to sit under the teaching of the philosophers. And while most men came into Athens to see, to admire, to enjoy, and to praise the great city of Athens, Paul saw something different. It says, as he was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. Why? Because he saw that the city was full of of idols. This is an apt description of the city here. Pliny says that there were over 30,000 different statues to the gods in Athens. Petronius says that one may more easily find a god in Athens than a man. There were temples everywhere. There were idols everywhere. The city was full of them. And in the glory of these great temples and the architecture and the sculpture, the Apostle Paul didn't see something to be admired, but he was provoked within him as his heart beat with the very heart of God. We find that God consistently in the Old Testament when he is confronted with the idolatry of the Israelites is provoked. It says in Jeremiah 32:29, God proclaims, that the Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it, with the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to the gods to provoke me to anger. Moses, as he's recounting in Deuteronomy, the sin of the Israelites at Mount Sinai as they had worshipped the golden calf, says that he had prostrated himself before the Lord. For 40 days and 40 nights, he says, I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Why was God provoked to anger? Well, Isaiah 42 in verse 8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And so the apostles heart was beginning to burn within him as he saw this city full of idols and he was provoked. 
He was provoked because he saw that the glory and the worship that God alone deserves was being given to dead and worthless idols. He was provoked because he saw men and women throughout the city who were created to be the image bearers of God, whose purpose in life was to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But they, in their depravity, the darkness of their minds and their sinful, rebellious hearts against God had exchanged the truth of God for a lie and were worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator who was forever praised. Amen. He was provoked because he saw in this city the work of Satan, the great enemy of God. He had saw how Satan had, had blinded the minds of these unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And he was provoked because he knew that because of all of this, that the wrath of God was being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of the men of Athens, who by their unrighteousness were suppressing the truth. For what could be known about God was plain to them, because God had shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, had been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, so these men were without excuse. And although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor did they give thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they had become fools. And they had exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And oh, that today, that the hearts of every one of us who sit here in this place would be stirred and provoked like the Apostle Paul. That our hearts would burn as we look around the oceanside our province, our country, and our world. Because make no mistake, the God of, of Athens are still alive and well today. You know, people today may not go into temples and bow their knees before an image made of gold in our city. But do they not bow their hearts to the gold that these idols were made of? We may not call the goddess whom we worship Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty and pleasure. But is this not the God we worship? And is this not the God that is proclaimed night after night and day after day as people throughout our city and even us spend our time in front of the idols of television and the internet watching and being indoctrinated in the worship of this God? Do we not see it on the magazine covers as we walk through the checkout are our hearts provoked because Aphrodite has made her way into the hearts and imaginations of men and women, including us. Athena, the goddess of worldly wisdom, worshipped in Athens, is still worshipped in our high schools and our universities today. As she is lifted high, will those who write the curriculums in our science classrooms exalt the unscientific foolishness of Darwinian evolution and proclaim it as true to our children. 
truly men and women claiming to be wise have become fools. And oh, that God would stir our hearts with a passion like the Apostle Paul. And oh, that we would be provoked to action like the Apostle Paul. For we come to verse 17 and it says the word so. So what was Paul going to do? He saw this city full of idols. Was he going to go and and write to one of his fellow Christians and say, you know, that these people, they're such pagans and they worship all of these things and, and we need to cloister ourselves in the walls of the church. We need to stay away from these idols. We have to protect ourselves from them. Or was he going to go and stand on the street corner with a banner that says, honk if you want to rid Athens of idols. Was he going to gather together the Jews and other people who saw the foolishness of this idolatry? And was he going to gather them together and write a petition and petition the city of Athens to begin to rid this city of idols? No. Because he knew it wasn't the physical idols that we see that needed to be eliminated. For these idols came from a factory. And that factory was from the depraved and rebellious hearts and minds of people who had not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. And so what does Paul do? He does the only thing that he can do. Because there is only one thing that can remove the idolatry from the hearts and lives of men and women, and that is the powerful gospel and the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so what did he do? It says so. He reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection in the marketplace, to the common people, to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and also to those in the synagogue. Or when it talks about the fact that he was reasoning with them in the synagogue, if we look back in chapter 17 to verse 2, what did he reason with them about in the synagogue? It says, And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And so in the synagogue, he proclaimed Jesus and the resurrection. In the marketplace, he proclaimed Jesus and the resurrection. To the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, he proclaimed Jesus and the resurrection. And now he is invited into the Areopagus to continue to expound on Jesus and the resurrection. In verse 19, it says, They took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And so they invited him to continue to expound Jesus and the resurrection. And we must ask ourselves, Paul, why did you just keep preaching Jesus and the resurrection? Didn't you have anything else to preach? Wasn't there something else that people needed to know? Paul, maybe you are only a babbler like these people say, like a bird who who constantly picked up little scraps of information along the way, and this is all you had, so this is all you preach. No. The Apostle Paul knew that it was only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, who was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that these people of Athens could be saved from the wrath of God and brought into the grace of God. 
It was only through the proclamation of Jesus and the resurrection that these people could be resurrected so that their eyes would be unblinded. That Satan, the God of this age, had blinded their minds and, and blinded their hearts. That as Christ and the resurrection was preached, that they would see the truth. It was only as Christ and the resurrection was preached that men dead in their trespasses and sins could be made alive together with Christ by the grace and love of God. It is only the power of the risen Jesus Christ that can take men who have fallen to such a depraved place in sin and recreate them once again into the image of Almighty God. It is only this power that would cause these people to turn from idols to worship and glorify the true God so that his glory would not be given to another. So he preached Jesus and the resurrection. And you may ask the question, well, would that work today? It's 2,000 years later. That might have worked then, but doesn't it sound rather foolish to tell sophisticated, educated, technologically advanced people in Oceanside today that a Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago was the Son of God? That he died a cruel death on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for sinners and to bear the wrath of God against sin. That he rose three days later from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in power and great glory. And now today he is commanding men everywhere to repent and to believe in him. And through belief in this man, in this resurrected Jesus Christ, men will be made right with God and brought into the grace and peace of God. And anyone who does not repent and believe in this Jesus is going to spend an eternal life apart from God in hell in judgment for their unbelief and their rejection of him. And I can tell you from experience, as, as these words come out of my mouth as I am speaking to people, they do sound rather foolish. But our belief is, is not in, in the people who will receive these words. We don't think that, that somehow we need to say something that they will readily receive and understand by themselves. No, they are, they are darkened in their understanding. We proclaim these words because we believe in the God who saves through the means that he has chosen to save people. And we proclaim this because we believe, as the Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25, that the word of the cross may be folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Where are the intellectuals of the universities? And those who stand up and proclaim that there is no God, where are they? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Do we believe that? Do we proclaim that? Do we look around at our city full of idols and do we say this is the only hope for any person who lives here 
to have the idols of their hearts removed and for them to become worshipers of the God who made them and, and created them and fashioned them and gives them life and breath and everything else. And this is what Paul preached. And we want to take a, a few minutes to look at, at what he preached. For what we have here in verses 22 to 34 is a message by Paul. It's not the entire message. I don't think he just spoke for about the minute and a half that it would take us to read this. It's an outline of what he said, but it is what Luke, through the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has given to us as an outline for things that that I believe we today need to think about as we proclaim this Jesus to this culture around us. Before we do that, I just want to look at some of the things that these people believed. I want to look at the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers for just a moment because I think when you hear what they believed, it will resound in your ears. You will recognize the very things that people believe today. For truly, there's nothing new under the sun. The Epicureans thought that the gods were distant from the earth. They didn't have any interest in what man was doing. They did not interfere with human lives. They believed that the gods did not create the universe. They believed that the god that they believed in, would not inflict punishment or blessing on anyone. They rejected the immortality of the soul and the afterlife. The Stoics, on the other hand, believed that God was in everything, and everything was in God. We are all part of God, and God is all part of us and everything else. God was imminent. He was in everything, but he was not transcendent. They believed that the universe was one eternal cycle. It just kept going. It never had a beginning and it never had an end. And it just carried on and on and on, almost like a a reincarnation. And it just kind of kept coming over and over and over again. They believed that an an individual did not continue to exist beyond death, but that they would be absorbed into the eternal soul. Is this not very similar to the things that many people believe in our day and age? And so I believe that what Paul does here is very appropriate for us and it is worthy of our study. We will not be able to study it extensively today. I commend it to you to go home and to think about these things and ponder them and wonder how you can apply them as we proclaim this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in our city. First, I want to look at Paul's introduction. In verses 22 and 23, he says, It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. But therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I want to point out just a couple of things. Notice that that Paul was not arrogant as he addressed these people. He was humble. He was not condescending in any way. He was very courteous. He was not precocious, but he was gracious. For Paul practiced what he preached. To the Colossian church in Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, he says this to them, and it speaks to us today. It says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. He says to his young apprentice Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading 
to a knowledge of the truth. And this is what Paul does consistently in, and the other apostles, as you see throughout the book of Acts. In Acts 26, just one example, he's addressing King Agrippa, and Paul exemplifies this again. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am before you today. I'm, not, I'm going to make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And so we, we have good news to proclaim, and we must not do this in, a, in an arrogant way or a condescending way. But we must come with, with gentleness and, and, and grace. And yet we must speak the truth unequivocally. So this is exactly what Paul does. You see it in verse 24. We'll read through to the end of his speech, and then we'll go back and take a look at a few things. It says, He begins, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods of their boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, Yet he is not actually far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for he, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Just a couple of of observations. One, the first one is what Paul does not do. You notice that not one time in there does Paul say, I believe this to be true. I think that there is a God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it. You know, well, I, I believe that, that he doesn't live in temples built by man. No. The Apostle Paul doesn't come proclaiming his beliefs, but proclaiming the facts of the gospel. And this is very important for us today, because in a pluralistic, relativistic society, as in Athens, in a place where people worship thousands of gods, You can say, well, I believe this. And they say, well, that's great. We can add Jesus to the other thousand gods and he can be a thousand and one. People will say to you, and I've had this many times, you know, when I first began to share the Gospels, I said, well, I believe, I believe. And then people would say, well, that's that's good. I'm glad that works for you. I'm glad you believe that. Now, this is what I believe to be true. You see, but Paul proclaims the facts. I find Mark Dever in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. It's in the church library. If you want to read it, I commend it to you. But he says this. He says, first, you must understand that the things you believe in as a Christian are facts. They're not mere beliefs or opinions. They are facts. Second, these facts are not yours in the sense that they uniquely pertain to you or your perspective or experience or in the sense that you made them up of your own accord. When you evangelize, you are presenting 
the facts of the Christian gospel. Because long before Paul believed this gospel, this gospel was true. Long before you and I ever came to believe the gospel, these things were true. Jesus Christ walked the earth. Jesus Christ gave his life in a sacrificial death on the cross. This is a fact of history. Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. This is a fact. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and this is a fact. God has appointed a day that he will send this Jesus once again to judge the world. That all those who have not looked to him for salvation will come under his condemnation. These are facts. And for you sitting here this morning, these things are true whether you believe them or not. Someone could say, well, you know, I, I don't believe in, in gravity and there's three people standing on the Empire State Building. I, I don't believe it. And so he takes a step off. Does it matter what he believes? Gravity is gravity. It's true. It's a fact. It's a law of nature. The things that we believe are facts, and they need to be presented that way. Jesus is right now at the right hand of the Father. This is true. And and we need to tell people the facts of, of the gospel, and that's exactly what Paul does all the way through. Secondly, I want you to notice something that you may not notice right away, that Paul's speech is saturated with Scripture. When he went before the Jews in the synagogue, Paul would go to them and he would begin with, with Abraham or, or, or the promises to David and he would quote them chapter and verse. And they didn't have that back then, but he would show them the places and he would work their way through the scriptures to teach them and show them that these things were so. And when Paul is proclaiming this gospel in Athens, he does not exa- abandon the scripture as if it has nothing to say to men and women like these. And I want to show you, I won't take much time, but I want to just take a look at verse 24, and I will show you that this is the case. In verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. The God. One God. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The God who made the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He does not live in temples built by man. Isaiah 66 says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? And what is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be. And so as we go out into this world to proclaim this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, we must know it. We must know our Bibles. God didn't just give us the word of God to save us and have us go off in our comfort and leave the rest of the world to sit in their idolatry and sin and blindness. No. He's given us a mission. Jesus saves us, not just for us. Yes, for us. But he sent us out on a commission. He says, go into all the world and proclaim this gospel, baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. We must obey the commission. In order to obey the commission, we must know what it is we speak about. We must know these things. We must have them in our hearts. We must have them in our minds. We must be saturated in the Scripture. 
so that we can point people to the facts and the truth of Scripture. Thirdly, I want you to notice where Paul begins and where Paul ends. He begins in Genesis 1-1 with the creation, and he finishes on the day, the last day, that God has appointed the consummation. He goes through the entire sweep of Scripture from beginning to end. And at the beginning and at the end, he goes to the two places where I believe most evangelicals today are running away from these things as fast as their feet can carry them. For people in the church today are abandoning the first 11 chapters of Genesis faster than Ben Johnson on steroids. They're running from it. We don't believe that we can trust the Word of God anymore. We don't believe in the authority of Scripture anymore. People today look God in the face as He has given His Ten Commandments and He says, on six days I created the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day I rested. Is God a liar? No. And I, I commend to you the great example set by the leadership of this church who have placed this great truth of the historicity of the book of Genesis right in our doctrinal statement is foundational. We cannot give up this ground. We must take this baton and pass it on to the next generation and not let it drop. Do you understand? When you write a, a, a book, what, what is foundational to that book? It's, it's, it's the introduction. When you write an essay, it's the introduction that gives the foundation for the entire book. Throw out the introduction. The rest of it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You throw out the first 11 chapters of Genesis and a belief in that, and I can tell you right now, my six-year-old knows exactly what it says. And so does yours. And woe to you if you teach him anything else. And I know that this is hard for some of you to hear, but you need to hear it. God is not a liar. His word can be trusted. And I know there are a lot of things out there that are telling you different. And I, I, I beg you to come and I can give you books and other things that will show you that, 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 that this is, is true. He not only starts in, in, in creation, but he finishes with the judgment. And there are people all throughout the evangelical world that want to erase hell from the Bible. That want to erase the judgment of God from the Bible. And I will say this, if, if it wasn't true, I would love to get rid of it. I would love to not have to speak about this. But if it is true, we must speak about it. You see, if, if you were, were walking along and you were walking toward a cliff, and I saw the cliff right in front of you, but you were happy walking, you were enjoying your walk, you were looking at God's great creation, I didn't know, oh, I, I don't want to interrupt that. I don't want to interrupt your stroll. I don't want to, you know, to disrupt what you've got going on here. No. I must yell out. I must proclaim, you're going toward a cliff. And if you go over that cliff, you're going to die. And the cliff that is before people, Paul preaches here, is that God has appointed a day. We do not know that day. It may be today. It may be tomorrow. It may be a year from now. But he has appointed a day, and this is a fact. And he will send Jesus Christ and he will come to judge all of those who have not looked to him in faith and believed in him and the power of his gospel. And we cannot not tell people this. We cannot be such cowards that we will not love our friends and neighbors and tell them, yes, yes, we have to be gracious. And we don't do this because it's what we believe. We do it because it's what the Bible says. 
And so notice the people's response. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. You can expect this. It does sound foolish. Unless the Holy Spirit illuminates and opens up people's hearts and eyes to see the truth, we will be mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Some will go, that sounds a little crazy. I don't really understand it, but can you tell me more? Maybe we can go for coffee sometime. And you can tell me more about this, Jesus. And you'll go home and you will be motivated to get into your Bible and to study and to think and to prepare because somebody wants to hear and you want to prepare. It'll grow you in your faith as you prepare to speak this gospel. And then thirdly, it says, So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Praise and glory to God. That as we proclaim this gospel, some men and women will believe. They will be brought into the grace and the mercy and the love of God. They will be saved from the wrath and the judgment of God. And they will live once again as image bearers of God for the glory and the worship of God. I want to conclude this morning by asking you one question. Which one of these people are you? There are actually four people here at the end. There are those who mock. And maybe you've been invited here by your spouse or a friend, or maybe you've heard about the church and you've lived your life mocking what Christians believe. Cussing the name of Jesus. Never thanking him for the life that he has given you, the breath that you breathe, the home that you live in, the health that you have the grace that he's given in placing you in this country of Canada. And yet I want to say to you, mockers, Jesus will even forgive you. You're not outside the pale. If you will look to him today, he will forgive you of all of that and welcome you into his kingdom. Maybe you are here this morning and and you say, you know, I'd like to hear more about this. Something is stirring in me and I'd like to hear more. Well, I, I beg you to talk to someone who you know here, if you know someone, come back again next week. We do this every week. And maybe there are some of you this morning who for the first time, all of a sudden, your eyes have been opened. And God has worked in your heart and life and you have come to believe. Don't keep this a secret. Tell someone next to you. Tell some of us. And go out and and tell the world the good news that there is a God who saves sinners like you and me. And finally, here we have the Apostle Paul, who, obedient to the command of God and the commission of God, went from place to place, proclaiming this glorious gospel to anyone who would hear day after day. Will we be those people? Let us pray that God would help us, that we would have the heart of God, that we would go to a lost city full of idols and proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ.